Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Podcast. Conservative Party of Canada leader Andrew Scheer accused Justin Trudeau of phasing out the energy sector. During a question period exchange, I spoke with Mr. Scheer. Developments in the Mueller investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. federal election. Lots of activity this week. I spoke with Toronto criminal lawyer and media commentator Barry Goldkind. Brad Wall, the former premier of Saskatchewan, says he's never seen the West this alienated. I spoke with Mr. Wall about that. Another weekend of rioting in France over fuel prices and anger over President Macron's policies. Was the federal chatter about French language service in Ontario or elsewhere, was it about the federal election next year or was it about French services? Julius Gray is a prominent human rights and civil rights lawyer in Quebec. I spoke with him. Joining me on the program now is the federal conservative party leader, Andrew Scheer. And uh, Mr. Scheer has accused Justin Trudeau of phasing out the energy sector during a question period exchange. I'm not sure what Mr. Trudeau's... I'm not sure what he... I, Mr. Scheer, I have no idea what he said in reply. It just sounded like a bunch of gobbledygook to me. But what what is it that you, what is it that you told Mr. Trudeau? What, what's the, thank you for joining us. What's the message that he has to understand from you? Well, what, what he has to understand is that his policies are, are directly uh, killing the energy sector. And what, the reason why I asked that in question period was because I believe that it's happening because Trudeau wants it to happen. Uh, you know, when Justin Trudeau goes around the world on the international cocktail circuit and he says, I'm frustrated because I can't phase out the oil sands or the energy sector right away. It's going to take some time. And then we see his policies where he's uh, killed Northern Gateway, killed Energy East allowed uh, Trans Mountain to, to, to linger in limbo to the point where we're losing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a day because we can't get our, our energy to market, I think to myself, it's happening. He, 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 he's, allow, he's, he's causing it to happen. I, I, I've started to take him at his word. And when he says he wants to get uh, Canada out of the energy business, and you look at all the steps that he's taken, and here we are, uh, I think this is on purpose. It's galling, though, isn't it, to really to hear him say that we can't have the kind of system that we have now because it's damaging to the economy when he's the steward of the very problem that we're having. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I wish I were standing right there beside him because I'd say, well, then, if that's the case, sir, why did you cancel the Northern Gateway Project? The Northern Gateway Project was a private sector-driven uh, pipeline that had community buy-in from dozens of First Nations organizations that were going to benefit in terms of jobs and revenue-sharing agreements that would have taken... Uh, Western Canadian Energy to a deep water par- port opening up Asian markets. So why did he kill that? Why did he kill the Energy East pipeline that would have taken Western Canadian Energy to Eastern Canadian markets, displacing foreign oil, including oil from Saudi Arabia? Uh, he says one thing, but then does the exact opposite. And he's not just he's not just a passive uh, observer of this. It's not just that he's managing this situation. Uh, it's not just that he's presiding over it. He is initiating policies and decisions that lead to the result that we're seeing today, where we're practically giving our oil away, where we're facing tens of thousands 
of job losses in Alberta. And, you know, if, if Justin Trudeau is worried about toxic masculinity, masculinity in, in areas where there's energy development, he's not going to have to worry about that if he's allowed another four years to continue because there won't be people working in the, in the energy sector. There won't be anybody, male or female, earning the paychecks to support their families. You, uh, you're sort of across the aisle from him on a, on a regular basis, on a weekly basis. You, you hear him talk. Uh, you, you hear his party talk. You, you have, a, a, I think, a, a sense of what it is they're, they're after and what the Liberals, in fact, are planning to do. Do you have any sense at all that the Trans Mountain Pipeline Extension is in their plans at all? I don't believe so. Uh, you know, I think that Justin Trudeau's political goal is to have it not officially uh, killed before the next election so that he can run around saying that, that it's still alive. Uh, but when you look at everything that he says, when you look at what his uh, his staff, his senior advisors, people who have come from uh, you know very left wing, uh, radical environmental groups in the past, and they all talk about, they all sound the same. They all talk about transitioning it out of the energy sector and and moving on and phasing out, and they you know have all this all these statements, and then you see the, the course of action they pursue, and it's so frustrating because they get away with saying. One thing, you know, if you listen to him in Canada, if you listen to him in Alberta, he talks about, you know, he says all the right things. He says, you know, we've got to get off of one market and, and we're not getting enough for our resources. Uh, but then he goes to Ottawa and he, and he issues orders and issues directives that does exactly that. It's, it's, it's almost like an Orwellian nightmare that we're living in where uh, it's, he's the one that's causing all the damage to this industry. And I'm getting really sick and tired of him getting up in question period or making these types of statements when it's all on his hands. When he, w- when he took over as prime minister, there were three of the world's finest pipeline proponents in the world ready to invest in Canada, at Northern Gateway, Energy East, and Trans Mountain. They're all gone. They've all left. They didn't leave because they're getting out of the energy business. They're getting out of the energy business in Canada. And Trudeau helped them pack their bags and drove them to the airport. And he received letters of warning and letters urging him to become more engaged with and positively engaged with uh, getting our energy to, to international markets. He received the, those letters from international investors recently saying, you know, you have to get on it. This is a, this is a significant problem for your country now. And Mr. Shearer, in 2008, 2009, when we dove into the Great Recession, one of the factors that kept our country um, kept our heads above water and caused us to be praised by other nations was the fact that we were using our our natural resources appropriately, or we had certainly had uh, objectives to do so. And now, and now we're, we're, we're as you say we're giving our oil away. I had uh, Frank McKenna on this program. I'm going to repeat this until people are sick of it. But the deputy chair of the TD Bank told me that over a seven year period we lost 117 billion dollars to the Canadian economy precisely because of what Justin Trudeau says we have to get rid of, which he encourages, but he talks out of the other side of his mouth, and that's the discount at which we sell our oil to the United States. Well, and you're exactly right. You know, in 2008-2009, our Canadian economy was kept from an even worse fate because the financial sector in Toronto where energy companies are, are traded, uh, the manufacturing companies that sell heavy equipment in the, uh, into the oil sands, they were all kept afloat because we still had a booming energy sector. Uh, the, the thing that, that, that frustrates me, I'm trying to, 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 to talk to more and more Canadians about who may not have first-hand direct knowledge of this industry, is it's not as if 
Trudeau has tried some things to get this going that haven't worked. It's he's literally done nothing uh, after after taking on his own initiative, killing two major pipeline projects. Since the Trans Mountain uh, decision of a few months ago, literally nothing has changed. There's no piece of legislation in the House of Commons right now that would uh, fast track uh, this project. There's no proposed regulatory changes. He bought a pipeline in the spring sending $4.5 billion worth of tax money to American investors, that we're sending our cheap oil down to the U.S., and now Trudeau's giving them $4.5 billion along with it. Nothing has been done. No. He promised that this would be uh, underway, and nothing is moving forward. And he has to answer for this. He is presiding over He's actively engaged in destroying tens of thousands of jobs for hardworking Canadians, and when that wave hits, when you talk about the financial sector in Ontario, the manufacturing sector in central Canada, the fact that we're buying energy from other countries, when all that starts to accumulate, he is setting Canada up with these massive deficits and jobs and investment in the country for a major economic problem. Yeah, well, we're buying 800,000 barrels of oil a day, foreign oil, to uh, keep our refineries in the eastern part of Canada going, instead of having energy east available so we can get the oil to those refineries. So we're buying 800,000 barrels a day. And, uh, and, and he keeps talking about Ener- uh, Trans Mountain being built uh, in the right way. I have no, no concept of what in the right way means to Justin Trudeau. Well, I mean, it means not at all, I guess. Uh, you know, that, that's his preferred, I suppose. His preferred status for a pipeline for Justin Trudeau is, is not being built at all. They're all gone. The energy sector is, is, is has been decimated. Yeah. Big, big companies that are used to every year planning for growth and investment and attracting jobs. These are people from all over Canada. This isn't just an Alberta or a Saskatchewan thing. There have been many, many families supported because people have gone and got skills and experience in the energy sector and then gone back to other parts of this country. This is a national problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid it's going to get worse under Justin Trudeau. Yeah, well, I listened to a phone call to my colleague Danielle Smith's show on uh, News Talk 770, our chorus radio station in Calgary from yesterday. I'm going to play back a little later from a manager of a company who called into Danielle and said he had to let go 25% of his workforce that day, as in yesterday, I think, uh, because of the situation that has developed under Justin Trudeau. And you could hear the emotion in the man's voice. He said the management team had taken a 40% cut in, in pay to keep as many people employed as they could, and yet he still had to lay off 25% of his workforce. That's the reality. 113,000 jobs lost in Alberta. That's the reality. And here's Justin Trudeau at, at the G20 carrying on about toxic masculinity. Anyway, uh, Mr. Shearer, thank you so much. Let's go ahead. No, go ahead. I do that, you know, it... it only someone who has inherited his family of fortune would make a statement like that to, to suggest that that uh, growth and opportunities and people moving into an area to extract natural resources at the highest environmental standards is somehow some kind of a problem that has to be managed, that has negative impacts. It just shows how, how completely out of touch he is. I, I, I hope he spends more time in Calgary and Alberta so that he can meet more of the people who are going through this because... Like you said, 100, over 100,000 jobs lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more vacant office space in Calgary now than in many, many Canadian cities yeah. in total. Uh, this, is a, this is a real issue. Thank you for your, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Ray. Andrew Scheer, the uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. But I'm going to play for you the call that we, uh, that we talked about with uh, Mr. Scheer. And that is the call that came into my 
Cornish colleague Daniel Smith's show on uh, News Talk 770 in Calgary. I believe it was yesterday. And just, just to set it up, Alberta has been going through a horrific time economically because of all of the restrictions and all of the challenges laid in the, laid in the way of the province and laid in the way of the energy sector. And over 100,000 jobs have been lost. I think the number was last quoted around 113,000. That's massive. And you have to remember that Alberta has been propping up and backstopping Canadian provinces through the transfer payments for decades. And now they're in serious trouble. And our federal government just seems to be engineering more trouble. Mr. Trudeau and his mob just seem to be engineering more trouble. And they seem to be doing it with some sort of enthusiastic uh, approach that I find really, I find disturbing. This is such an integral part, an integral part to our economic well-being in Canada. Now, have a listen to the call that came into Daniel Smith's program yesterday from an employer. Here we go. She used to be a politician. Now she's keeping them honest. Danielle Smith on 770 CHQR. We got Dwayne on the line. Dwayne, go ahead. Hey, Danielle. Uh, a couple things. You know, if, uh, if close to the oil is supposed to uh, the differential, oil would have to get up to around $80, $85 a barrel for that to work. That's not going to happen. And to ship a barrel of oil on one barrel of oil, it was eighteen fifty. To $20 a barrel. So the cars aren't going to help any either. But here's here's something, all right? Today, in my job, I have to lay off 25% of my workforce. Oh, man. Right before Christmas. Man, what, what kind of what kind of work are you in? Because we've been talking about the oil field services oil. guys on the, fr- on the front oil. lines. That's where you are? Oil. And I love my guys. And, and you know what? I got to lay off I got to lay off 25% of these guys. They make, yeah, they make between 70000 and and hundred grand a year. I got to get rid of $3 million. And you know what? My bosses are saying $3 million like they're not people. Well, Dwayne, I can tell. You know, you know what? And, 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 and you know what? All you people that voted for the NDP... And don't think they're totally pulling this over your eyes. And you're thinking, oh, well, you know, well is all is well and Kenny is the devil. You know what? Tell that to all the guys I got to lay off today. Because they're going home to tell their wives tonight Christmas is over. And you know what? We got nothing. Because $70,000 a year in this environment is nothing is absolutely nothing. And my bosses are trying to save other people's jobs. They're not trying to save their own because you know what? We're management. We've taken a 40% pay cut so we can keep as many people employed as we can. And today I got to break people's hearts. And I got to tell them that you're no longer useful to us. 
because of money. And 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 this is what the so this is what socialism does, everybody. Dwayne. You know, they're chasing out investment. This is Venezuela coming and you don't think it's happening and it can't happen in Canada, folks? Open your eyes because this is just the beginning. Well wow. and you know what? And this is the most this is the worst day of my life. Because I gotta get rid of friends. Breaks your heart. And really is absolutely heartbreaking to hear. And it is so unnecessary. And it's repeated more than likely time and again. More on that later. Developments of the Mueller investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 United States federal election. As Mr. Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, admits now to lying to Congress. Is this what the Mueller investigation needed, or is it really not such a big catch at all? That's the view of renowned Harvard law professor and appeals lawyer Alan Dershowitz. Uh, Paul Manafort also is accused of lying. Is Mueller wrapping up? And what is Donald Trump likely facing from the Mueller investigation? Harry Goldkind is Toronto criminal lawyer, also a media commentator, and well, I'd like to have Harry on this program. Harry, what do you make of uh, this, the developments this week? How significant are they? Are they are they what what some people are suggesting, and that's the uh, the uh, almost the part of the end of the road, rainbow for Mueller, or not such a big deal? Uh, good afternoon, Roy. Great to be on with you. You know, it's a very interesting week when you combine Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen. Those two names have to go together. So if you look for a smoking gun, which most lawyers, particularly a prosecutor, will look for, you need corroborative evidence. So in other words, now you have Michael Cohen talking about the fact that in June of 2016, and I'll explain why that date matters, because in, uh, in and around June of 2016, all of a sudden, Trump's stance on Russia started to soften. He started to take a very different position on Russia than previous Republican administrations did. And remember, Republicans have been notoriously hard on Russia and on Putin. They've offered no sympathy for him, and they've always taken what's called a hawk position. Then all of a sudden, Trump starts to soften. So what's happening in June of 2016? He's trying to make a hotel deal to have a 15-story tower built in Moscow and whose permission is required to get sign-off on getting that hotel built. Russian government officials. So what Mueller is really looking for was truly a quid pro quo, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, between the Trump campaign or the candidate or his lawyer Cohen and somebody or some people in the Russian government. And lo and behold, in and around that time, I think all of your listeners, Roy, will remember, that's when the hack of the Democratic National Committee goes out. All of everything gets revealed that helps Trump. So now you have Michael Cohen saying, when Trump said, I've got nothing to do with Russians after January of 2016, Trump is, on Michael Cohen's telling, absolutely lying. That gets uh, Robert Mueller a lot closer to some evidence, if not a smoking gun, of collusion. Although, in my view, Roy, I have to say, as I end that answer, to me, a lot of it may be much ado about not a lot. Uh, that's what uh, certainly what um, Alan Dershowitz seems to be saying. Also, Donald Trump says, well, so what if I was working on a deal with Russia or a hotel or a building in Russia? I'm perfectly entitled to do that. It's, it's no big deal. 
but it it does it it raises the interest factor uh, exponentially. I think. Well, here's why it may be a big deal. I don't think it's a big deal that he's paying off porn stars. I don't think anybody elected him to be America's favorite husband uh, or America's best father. He's thrice divorced. Nobody didn't know that, including the evangelicals who have stuck by him throughout. Where it becomes more interesting is if he's in cahoots with Russian officials or specifically Mr. Putin, who essentially runs that part of the world, if he is changing U.S. strategic interests to be more favorable to Russia because there's a few bucks in it for him, that is something that really goes against the U.S. Constitution, and I'm being very literal there, because he is now not taking his allegiance to the United States of America. He is taking positions that would be favorable and liked by the Russian government. That is something that I think Robert Mueller would find much more interesting than paying off Storm Daniels. But as I said to you on previous occasions, Roy, the crime of colluding or corresponding or doing a deal with the Russians will never be as significant as lying to Congress or lying to Mueller. And that's why Manafort and Cohen have been in such trouble. And uh, the other day, Mr. Trump said that he would not take the possibility or the option of a pardon for Paul Manafort off the table. And that's a really, I mean, you know, you couldn't have a Netflix or HBO show any more clever. I mean, talk about House of Cards. That is an absolute House of Cards move where Paul Manafort, just to make it make sense, signs a cooperation deal. Those are very important in the States, particularly in this kind of prosecution. Because, again, Mueller needs evidence. It's not enough that people on CNN or MSNBC don't like Trump and people on Fox very much like him. You need evidence. And Manafort seems to have told Mueller a few very interesting details. And remember, Mueller was working for free for Trump. Think that through. Not too many people go to work for free. Manafort was very, very closely tied with Russian officials and is worth tens of millions of dollars because of it. That's what makes it interesting that all of a sudden Manafort starts clamming up or telling Mueller certain lies. And when Trump says, I don't take a pardon off the table, you almost have like kangaroo court, you know, almost sort of third world type of despot or dictator kinds of deals here. When at the end of the day, that is not something in any universe that has any place in the States. And imagine, Roy, and I'll leave you with this thought. Imagine if Barack Obama was suggested or thought to do anything like what's going on here with Cohen and Manafort and pardons, there would be a Fox News riot and a riot down Main Street calling Obama every name in the world. But somehow, because Trump has a different, uh, let's say, view, and he's known to not be all that truthful at times, or to use the Stephen Colbert word, truthiness, it seems to be that no matter what Trump does, it's just another drop in the ocean, but I'll tell you, it's a very, very odd standard where Trump is throwing around the promise of a potential pardon to somebody, Roy, and this is important, particularly given what I do for a living, who is a convicted felon. He is not presumed innocent. He is a convicted felon, and Trump is saying, yeah, yeah, I just may pardon my old friend Paul. That, to me, is troubling. That really made me sit up and take notice when he said that. Now, let me ask you one more thing, Harry. 
What do you expect is going to come out of this? What do your senses tell you? Is Mueller going to develop, is he going to deliver something of substance? Or has he been on a fishing expedition? I know there have been charges and I know there have been convictions. But if they're going after Donald Trump, does your sense tell you they're going to come back with something that's going to set the United States on its ear? Great question. The $64,000 question, or in Trump's uh, telling his $3 billion question. Here's my answer to that. I think if this is all that it leads Mueller to, that there's some lying about a hotel, that he had some relationships with some Russians, I just think at the end of the day, the American people are going to have a colossal yawn, and they're going to accept Donald Trump's version, which up to date, he actually has a point that this has been a concerted effort to undermine his presidency. But I do think, and I'll tell you why, we're going to go way inside baseball here, Roy. The answer is, I think Mueller has been so quiet with so many uh, parts of his team that do not leak. I emphasize this. There's been circling the wagons. There's no leaks. If he's doing the job of a prosecutor to the nth degree, I think something is coming down the pike. There's a part of me that thinks it could affect Donald Trump Jr. and Manafort and Cohen more than the president. But until, and this is the takeaway, Roy, until the Republicans in the Senate turn on Trump and realize he's not like them, he doesn't stand for what they stand for. In fact, he stands for the opposite of what the Republican Party has stood for for decades. I don't think Donald Trump is in any danger whatsoever. That being said, I think Mueller has done everything by the book. And as somebody who defends these cases, when I see a prosecutor doing everything the way it should be, I do think there could be another shoe that could drop, Roy. But if it doesn't, boy, what a waste of two and a half years this has been, and particularly the undermining of a presidency that, if there is nothing more, should not have been undermined. And some broadcast careers are going to end, too. Oh, there's going to be many, (laughs) many of those because that's the business. That's right. Ari, thank you so much for the time. Pleasure, Roy. We're talking to Eric Goldkind, Toronto uh, criminal lawyer and media commentator. He's good. Um, yeah, and then there's the, uh, is it Strzok, the FBI agent and his paramour? Uh, they're into it uh, up to their elbows in emails and correspondence that's very questionable. So what's going to come out of this? Who knows? But there, it just seems as though... The pimple is going to burst. I know it's a t- <laughs> I could have thought of something better than that. Anyway, it is coming to a head. Well, there we go again. We'll we'll know soon. Uh, Premier Wall, thank you very much for the time. I I really reacted to something that you tweeted the other day, and that is you have never seen Western alienation as it is today. Would you describe that for us? What are you talking about? What, where's, the, where's the alienation directed? Well, it's a product of the issues that you've just summarized quite, uh, quite nicely there at the top here at the top of the hour. And so it's around the energy policies uh, for the most part of the federal government. And let's not, let's not to kid ourselves. Um, the Northern Gateway is not just, you know, sort of paused or stalled. It's dead. The Trudeau government withdrew from it. Uh, and by the way, with the support of Rachel Notley, which I think Albertans uh, are, are remembering and will remember uh, in April. Energy East, the same. Uh, there's uh, That was killed by the federal government. It's not sort of uh, laying in wait. I guess it could be revived, but it's basically dead because the company withdrew after the federal liberals 
changed the rules of the game, moved the goalpost, if you will, and required pipelines to measure both upstream and downstream emissions as part of an approval process. And that was sort of, the, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back for that one. You have the carbon tax. You have unilateral methane regulations that have uh, that will disproportionately affect Canada. In fact, entirely affect the Canadian industry because the U.S. under Trump walked back its commitment for a bilateral reduction on methane. People don't talk about that, but that's a very, very significant. And on top of that, in the midst of this differential crisis, it has been caused by policy. The price of oil, although it's off here lately, is is a lot stronger than it has been for some time worldwide. We all know that. Your listeners know it. Uh, of course, we're getting around $10, $12, $13 for Western Canada, so like and some, some significant discount for other Western Canadian grades, which has, which has provided for our industry, for a lot of companies, an existential crisis, and that's not hyperbole. This is, so, this is serious. This is a national emergency, and in that context, with that as the backdrop, Roy, the federal government is barreling ahead with Bill C-69, the No More Pipeline Bill, which would overhaul and introduce a brand new impact environmental impact assessment process just after we're kind of sort of getting close to figuring out this current process. Uh, and that will effectively end, not me saying it, the industry pipeline association and companies that ends the chance for pipelines to be built in this country. So if Mr. Pri- the prime minister comes to Calgary, was it last week? Uh, and sort of says, I feel your pain. What he should have said, Roy, is I am immediately pausing or withdrawing Bill C-69 and Bill C-48, the tanker ban, which is directed directly at Western Canadian interests. Saskatchewan's the second largest producer of oil. So uh, my province, where I'm speaking to you from today, is, is very much feeling the brunt of this. And I think it's given rise to people asking questions. What, <laughs> what have we done to the center of this country to be treated like this, especially after we have industries in the West? that have contributed mightily to the health of this country, that have helped uh, indirectly and directly fund quality of life programs for all Canadians, transfer payments for all Canadians. Saskatchewan and Alberta taxpayers are still today, Roy, notwithstanding the, the four-year commodity down cycle, now exasperated by the differential issue, notwithstanding all of that, Alberta and Saskatchewan taxpayers are paying into the equalization program to the tune of roughly take a look at the program on a per capita basis, $2.5 billion, while the, those provinces get nothing back. Uh, while other, the center of the country, frankly, takes, I think, about 12 to $13 billion of the $19 billion equalization program, with 11 of it going to Quebec. And Western Canadians, and not sort of the usual, what you might think of as the usual suspects, the, the ones that might have been, uh, that still remember the National Energy Program, but I talk to young professionals who, who, are, who aren't, separatist i'm not saying that but they're feeling very alienated they're wondering what is what is happening they're wondering why why doesn't the rest of the country why doesn't its national government seem to like what we do to make a living and to contribute and to create jobs for all canadians i just sense I, i've sensed it growing and i haven't seen it like this um, and I, I was a political nerd back in high school and remember the nep days that followed it uh, and i remember my dad's frustration about it but honestly, this seems to be more acute because it's coming from a uh, from a, uh, a broad sort of demographic. Uh, con- you know, the concerns are coming from a- across a broad sort of demographic. And the federal de- government doesn't care. And we know that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has received letters from international investors uh, urging him 
to be more proactive about getting the pipeline situation uh, resolved and getting getting the uh, the oil moving through the pipelines to the international markets so that international or foreign investment money will come into Canada. They're not interested. They just are not interested, Mr. Wall. And they, uh, you know, as, as well as I do, $18 billion deficit, $690 billion national debt, going to cruise over $700 billion very quickly and, uh, and, and without any real attempt to stop it. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, not only do you have to pay back the principal, but then there's the interest factor as well. This is really a, this is a, a crisis that never should have occurred. It never should have happened. And there is well, no, there's no intention to stop it. You can't. Uh, Am I wrong about that? You're not. You can't blame uh, variables outside the control of Canadians for this. You can't blame the price for this. Uh, the differential that's being visited now and, and so destructive uh, for in terms of jobs and our economy in the West, uh, and frankly for the country, as you pointed out off the top, it's a man-made problem. As we decided, we didn't want pipelines. Let us not forget, Roy, and let, I hope Albertans don't forget in April when they go to the polls. Trudeau walked away. Yes, they had a, uh, they had a uh, uh, some issues in, in court, as TMX did. But rather than work through those, as they are trying to uh, with TMX because they own it, they had to go full in as well and buy that pipeline. Uh, but rather than fight through uh, what the court ruling said about Northern Gateway, they walked away with the support of the Premier of Alberta. So we, there's a lot of accountability to be had by different sources, including leadership in the West. And I would say this, Roy, and I, this is not very popular in some of the groups that I speak to, perhaps, but on the 22nd of November 2015, the Premier of Alberta announced a carbon tax basically admitting that all of the detractors and the opponents of the of our energy sector were right and that we had to pay this indulgence, this carbon tax, to try to earn back some sort of social license. A carbon tax, by definition, no matter the gimmickry, no matter the rebate program, by definition has to hit the industries that are the heavy emitting industries. That's modern agriculture, that's energy, it's manufacturing, it's mining, it's what we do in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Lined up behind her in terms of, you know, this, this notion of exploring who should be held accountable. Lined up behind you that day, I think, were five CEOs of oil companies who sort of bought in, perhaps, to the Stockholm Syndrome theory that, you know, or, or, the, or this guilt complex or the social license theory, which, of course, has borne out to be a completely false. So there's a lot of accountability to go around, but principally we have government policies that we can point to, uh, and, um, and I think that's what's got people... And, and, and you're right, it, it seems as though the government doesn't care. Because if a government did care about these issues, if, they did, if the Prime Minister was really feeling the pain, as he said in Calgary, they would not be going forward with Bill C-68, which will make it worse, or Bill C-69, both of them, there's companion bills. They would not be, the C-68 will hurt the offshore. 69 is, about the, is the no more pipeline bill. They wouldn't be going through with C40, the type, the tanker band. They just wouldn't. But you see, they are going through with them. And that's what has Westerners thinking. At least people in Saskatchewan and Alberta, I don't know so much about where you are, uh, or sorry, about, uh, about the West Coast. Um, but it has people asking the question in Alberta and, and to, a st- to an extent in Saskatchewan, how, how could we, how could this be the same country that we are 
mm-hmm. proud to be citizens of doing this to us. How Mr. Wall, this be? let me get you to just hold on for a second. We'll come back with Brad Wall. Former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall is my guest, and we're talking about this in Western alienation. Uh, Premier Wall, and I'll always call you a Premier because you've earned the honorific, and, uh, and, and, and I think it's only right to do that. When you look at Let me ask you this. In the upcoming First Minister's Conference, is it true, do you know, whether there's any specific time set aside to discuss the energy issue? I have seen the agenda. Uh, There is no time. There is zero time for the resource sector for this particular energy. As of now, as of a few days ago, I mean, maybe the chair of that meeting, who happens to be the prime minister of the country, has come to his senses and ensured that there's going to be a discussion. Can you imagine if there was a, an existential crisis for major, a near to ex- existential crisis for major employers, for a, a huge part of the sector, hundreds of thousands of jobs lost, more at risk in the province of Quebec and Ontario, or we just pick one of them, and it not being a part of, uh, of the uh, First Minister's meeting on the economy. By the way, I think it's the first one on the economy. There's been several on the environment. Uh, I was at a couple of those. This will be the first one on the economy. Moreover, I couldn't see a reference to it in the federal government's mid-year economic statement. Not a word. And so then people wonder, well, why are Western Canadians, specifically the energy sector, but maybe more broadly Western Canadians, why are they, why are they feeling alienated? Uh, well, there's a couple of good reasons right there. What, uh, what could the outcome be? of this alienation if it continues to, the situation continues to deteriorate and the emotions continue to escalate, what what happens? Well, here's my hope. My hope is that Western Canadians will reach out uh, to our many uh, fellow citizens in other parts of the country and encourage them as we approach a federal election in October to have these centers front of, uh, have these issues front and center in that campaign and uh, maybe even a determinant role that they could play in that campaign. I, uh, the, the, the best remedy, of course, is to, is, to ha- is to have a government, either the existing one, change its policies or, or, or the government to change itself. And I think we'll need the support of Canadians. That's why I'm a bit hopeful on that front. I'll say this, Roy. Um, I'm a bit sort of just ranting here, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to do that. But to be a bit more hopeful and constructive, what happened during the... Uh, after Mr. Anderson at uh, Kinder Morgan gave the deadline of May 31st on, on the pipeline, or they'd sort of just have had enough and walk away, the country, beca- the country became very uh, interested in the issue of pipelines, more than so than they'd ever been, at least in, for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. It led the news. It was top of mind. And what happened? We saw the polling get better. We saw by the time that uh, deadline was near, you know, all the polls were basically averaging out around close to 60% support for pipelines, 53% even in British Columbia, the last Angus Reid poll the last week of May, just before the deadline. So that gives me hope, because when Canadians are pragmatic, and I think they're proud, they're proud that, you know, that they have an oil industry in this country that never claims perfection, but is working to be more sustainable and responsible than any of its competitive uh, oil sectors in any other country. Right. I think they're proud of that fact. They know it's better a better alternative than Saudi oil. Mm-hmm. I think they're also pragmatic, and they think, well, it's not Canadian oil to supply growing oil okay. demand. Who's, who's would it be? 
I thank you for the time. We haven't even talked about carbon tax. Thank you, uh, thank you for the time. I'm going to find out from our callers in the next half hour what this Western alienation sounds like when they get, get on the phones. Mr. Wall, thank you for the time. All the best for you. Take care. Bye-bye. Brad Wall. I wanted to talk to him about his son, too, Colton Wall, great uh, country music artist. So we'll do that another time. People in the streets of Paris as they, for the third weekend in a row, are protesting and rallying and in some cases rioting over the initiatives brought forward by their president, Emmanuel Macron, who is diving in the popular opinion polls, according to news reports that I've been reading. Joining us now from uh, Paris is uh, French reporter Jérôme Godfroy. Jérôme, thank you very much for taking the time uh, Third weekend of rallies, some say rioting about rising fuel prices. Police fired tear gas, stun grenades, and water cannon in the Champs-Élysées, according to the BBC. How bad is it? It's really bad, and it's it's a very complicated uh, situation. It's very difficult to apprehend. It's, uh, it's, I've never seen anything like this uh, in France or any other country I know. Uh, this is a situation which is very localized. You have to understand that if you have seen pictures and when you, if you see the, the pictures on newspaper, on TV uh, to, to, today or tomorrow, this is in, in, a, in one area of Paris, okay? Uh, a, a few thousand of people routing. Uh, in the rest of the country, it was rather quiet. There were uh, a, a number of demonstrations, uh, but nothing violent. The violence is around the Champs-Élysées, around the Arc de Triomphe in that area. It has been like this the entire day. It's finished now. The police has, 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 is now is controlling the situation completely. But it's, it, you know, it's, it's the effect of, of, of you put the focus on one thing and you think the entire country is burning. Mm-hmm. It's not true. But it's a very difficult, complicated uh, situation. And the power, uh, Macron, the government, is not able to find a solution because it's not a, 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 a political, uh, a classic politi- political uh, demonstration. It's, it's coming from the base, through uh, Facebook, uh, through the Internet, and, and, and there is no leader, there is no uh, demand, clear demand, because the, 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 the pretext of, of uh, the, 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 the rise of the, of the price of, of gas is now completely forgotten. We are way beyond that. Now, what I've been hearing and what many of us have heard is that the protests in, in, in Paris, the rioting, uh, has to do with the president's policies. And there's a sense, I keep hearing, that he is accused of being disconnected from the people, that he does not have a connection with the average person. And there's also uh, there's news stories that suggest it's broad-based across the political spectrum. Is that true? Yes. Uh, Macron, you know, is, is a very unique uh, president. Uh, he's, he's 40. Uh, he has been elected by, by chance, in a way, uh, with the, uh, good circumstances for him. Uh, he has no real political uh, experience because... He has never been a mayor. He has never been elected before, ever. His first, his first position is president. He starts from the top. So he has no uh, real connection and knowledge of, of, the, of the deep France, of 
you know, or the villages, uh, like, like uh, what a local politician starts in his career, like going to the markets, talk to the people, go to the cafe. Uh, he, he has never done that. He's a very bright, very intelligent guy, but he has no connection with the reality of this country. That's my opinion. All right, so let me ask you this. There's a new story now about uh, President Macron and uh, the Saudi Sheikh, uh, MBS, yep. having a conversation, and they have audible parts in the, uh, in the video of them talking. Macron says, I am worried I told you. You never listened to me because I told you it was an opportunity for you. And MBS replies, it's okay. I can take it. Any ideas? Uh, well, it's, uh, I've seen that video, I've heard it, and i read the stuff about it. It has been uh, uh, released by the Saudis, I, as I understand. It's not clear, and it's not related whatsoever with the, the unrest uh, situation in France these days. Okay. You know? uh, it's, it's really something which has to do with uh, uh, the, 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 the killing of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Saudi reporter. In, 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 in Istanbul, right. and so this is this is a very difficult, a very different uh, matter. It has okay. nothing to do with what we what I have seen today in Paris. Now, let me ask you: How does this end? How does this trouble end in the streets of France? If, whether it's rallies and demonstrations that are peaceful, or whether it's the violence that we're seeing, and that's where the television cameras have flocked to. Uh, how does it end? That's a very good. That's a very good question. That's the only question. And there is absolutely no answer, no answer, because whatever Macron or the government would say now, it, I'm afraid it's too late. I know, I, I, you know, because they have, they have made some propositions that they have make, made a proposal for for a, a variable price of gas, things like that. But it, these, these things are too weak to be heard by by the the people on the street of France and Paris. It, I have about, I have, dead, Jerome, I have about, I'm sorry, I have about 10 seconds. Is he, is okay. he politically in trouble? I think so. I think so. And it's an emergency. He goes, he, he flies uh, from Buenos Aires to Paris tonight. And uh, there is, it's a, it's a matter of days. He has to do something, something, uh, you know, uh, very efficient, uh, very strong. Otherwise, he's going to be very deep, political trouble. Jerome, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Okay. All the best. Bye-bye. Jerome Godfroy, reporter joining us from Paris. The issue of the French language service cuts and then adjustments, and MPP Samar decided she would leave the PC caucus over the French language service cuts announced by the Doug Ford government. So I thought about whether I wanted to talk about this on the air or not. And I, uh, I've been through this whole uh, language issue in Quebec in the 1960s when I was a kid, when it uh, all began. At least it began for, uh, for me because I was, what, 13 years old or so and started to uh, try to get some edginess in the relationships that I had with some of my Francophone friends because of things that were developing, uh, the FLQ and... and um, terrorist actions and just, uh, well, it just got edgy. We'd just been friends before, and then it became more difficult to be friends. Then along came the Parti Québécois and uh, PQ governments and Bill 101, 
the French primacy, French language primacy like legislation, which the Supreme Court of Canada struck down, but former Quebec Premier Robert Bourassa used the notwithstanding clause to uh, overrule the Supreme Court, and I spoke with him about that the week after, ironically enough, the week after the 1995 referendum, the 1995 referendum on Quebec's sovereignty. Uh, I happened to be in uh, California, and uh, and he was there, and I asked for an interview, and he gave it to me. So there we were, a week after the Quebec referendum, standing on the beach of the Pacific Ocean in California, talking about the Quebec referendum. It was really, really surreal. But I asked him at that time, why did you use the notwithstanding clause? And in a couple of minutes, I'm going to play back that answer from the then premier. He wasn't the premier in 1995, but he was in the 80s when he used the notwithstanding clause to um, uphold the French language primacy law. On the issue of language in Quebec, joining me is Julius Gray. He is a prominent human and civil, civil rights lawyer in Quebec. We speak with Mr. Gray periodically on the program. And Julius, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. The, uh, let's talk about the Quebec legislation, the, the, uh, the, the, the French language primacy law. Is it still Bill, o, Bill 101 or is it Bill 22? What is it now? Well, people use the Bill 101. It's called the Charter of the French Language. Okay. The name of it. But uh, you can, uh, if you say Bill 101, everybody knows that. Right. Uh, it's in force. It's in force in part only because the Supreme Court uh, struck down parts, as you said. And although Bourassa brought back a portion of it, notwithstanding, we then went to the United Nations. The United Nations declared it to be contrary to freedom of expression for forbidding signs in other languages, and Quebec complied. Quebec complied with the international ruling. So uh, right now, it's the Bill 101, as amended by the courts, which is still in force as far as school and so on is concerned. But I do want to point something out. You're entirely right. Things got edgy in the 60s and 70s. I remember it, too, a little bit. People were uneasy and were thinking, can I stay here, etc. But it's all over now. There's no difficulty being friends. Uh, friendships, marriages, everything between French and English is, is just normal, and relations are, are, are good. You don't notice. I don't even think about who's French and who's English. It's interesting you say that because I lived in Quebec from 2007 to 2016, and I would find myself... Um, several times a week anyway, running into, and I'm just talking now about interpersonal relationships, or not even relationships, just encounters. I would find myself just feeling like, here we go again. And it brought back, it brought, yeah, it brought back memories that were very, very unpleasant, uh, or, or, yeah, it brought back unpleasant memories. Now, as well, far I, as, let me ask you, before, before we go to that, do, what is the law, in fact, in Quebec now, um, what does it what does it what does it say about front language primacy? It says French is the language of Quebec. It also says one recognizes the contributions of the uh, English language, and it creates English institu- or at least bilingual institutions, and uh, it uh, uh, has certain rules about c- contracts and so on. But uh, things have to be available in French. But that's. Uh, uh, that's what it is. It doesn't. Uh, the, the one area where it con- uh, creates a, uh, a con- uh, constraint is on access to to English school, where certain people can't go. And who can't go to the uh, English schools? People can go to English school if, if their parents were educated 
in, uh, in English schools in Quebec, or if their parents are Canadian citizens whose child went to English school anywhere in Canada. Uh, but, you know, for instance, even English-speaking immigrants, people from the United States, can't send their children to English school. Now, when it comes to the issue of, uh, of language, as it appears, on a restaurant menu, remember the famous story about, it was an Italian dish. What was it? Uh, was it? I don't know, spaghetti or something. But... Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a story that, that made national headlines, and I can't remember what the Italian dish yeah. was. But there was, no, there was no French word for it. And the restaurant in Montreal, a famous restaurant in Montreal, was uh, visited by the uh, by the euphemistically called language police. By the, well, like, language police, they call them where they're feast, they're overzealous. Uh, yeah, because uh, exec, uh, enforcers of the law. But they're still there, and, right? I mean, they still exist. They're still there, but the type of stupid things like the spaghetti incident are now relatively rare. When you say you were encountering things, you see, I can't tell you, uh, I, I can't contradict you for the simple reason that I. When I walk into a store, almost never start speaking English unless I know. What I speak French. Yeah. I always, always yeah. speak French, so I, uh, I don't know if there is any uh, hostility. But I would be surprised right now because I, you know, when I go, oh, I, I ran into it. Now, now it wasn't Montreal. Together all the time, Julius. It wasn't Montreal. It was the eastern townships. So it was oh. communities like Magog and Sherbrooke. Oh, maybe I don't. I don't know. I not often there. But what I can tell you is, whatever I do, wherever I go. French and English are mingled, and uh, I, uh, friendships, as I said, and marriages, and there's so many children who have a father who's French and a mother who's English or vice versa. Yeah. It's just not something that uh, affects the way we live. But on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day interpersonal relationship basis, that's fine. But there is still legislation makes French. French is, is the primary language. It's the only official that's language, right? Yeah, it's the only official language, but English has a status, and of course, English also has federal status. But, but could you imagine? Could you imagine what would happen in Ontario, or yeah, Ontario, if the Ontario government would suddenly say English is the only official language in Ontario? I think English is the official language of Ontario, but in any case, there is much more English used in Quebec than there is French used in Ontario. You try to go around Toronto, navigate in uh, French, uh, as opposed to navigating in English in Montreal. It's obvious that, except for New Brunswick, which is a special case, Montreal is the most bilingual place. Yeah, Montreal is a special case too. Yeah, but it's the most bilingual place in Canada. You can live your whole life. You've got movies. You've got universities. You've got theaters. Now, to have a good job, you've got to speak both languages. Actually, yeah. both. But I will tell French, you, it's a major handicap. I will tell you, in cities like Sherbrooke and Magog, and they're not uh, Sherbrooke's a large city, as you know. It's yeah. the the home of Jean Charest and. Uh, uh, it's it's a big city uh, by yeah. you know by any standard. Magog is a little bit smaller, but there are yeah. many places you go where you cannot get by unless you speak French. And look, I never had a problem with that. I said French is when we when when we moved there, and I moved there in two thousand and seven. I'd gone to school there in the sixties, so I knew what the the deal was, and my French is reasonably good. And so I said I don't have a problem with it. But a problem I have is when your civil rights are compromised by legislation. Well, I do too, and I don't know about Sherbrooke and Magog. I haven't. I don't. I'm not often there. I've, uh, I, I, I would be very uh, upset if there were still places in Quebec where there was open hostility or or or, or even mistrust or anything like that. Uh, all I can say is that in the place where I live, Montreal, there are certain constraints. They're not very serious. The school one, one can debate. You see, I have a solution for the school one, which is that high schools 
should be uh, 70% French, 30% English for everybody. Uh, and that way you'd mix everybody and everybody, and, and there would be no such thing as people who would be handicapped for jobs in the future. But uh, as it is, uh, apart from the school thing, you can live without hard, without being affected by it at all. Is the uh, is the new government of Quebec doing away with uh, with English school boards, all school boards? Well, all school boards. It's not going okay. to pick only the English ones. But the English it's ones are upset. upset. English yeah, but, are upset. but on the other hand, Mr. Legault now said he's going to put that off. I think he realized what a can of worms he'll be opening yeah. by doing that. It'll almost certainly go to the Supreme Court because uh, the question will be, uh, you remember, the English schools are a constitutional right, yeah. but it's not just English language schools. It's English-controlled schools, English curriculum. Okay. And if you took away the school board, I'm sure it would end up in the you, Supreme Court three years later, yeah. and Legault would have an election. You do, you, you, you do know there, is, there are hospitals in Quebec which communicate only en français. Not the doctors uh, or the patients, but their but their their communication with the communities, seulement en français. I, I, yes, I, I, I know that. All but the ones that are, are uh, uh, on the list. Uh, the, the McGill University Health Center is bilingual. The uh, uh, there are Jewish General. The, the uh, there are other St. Mary's. There's uh, uh, things on Lakeshore. There are lots of um, uh, bilingual institutions. But yes, institutions that are not bilingual yeah. will communicate with the outside world in French and communi- hand, and communities that are not. Was it fifty percent? Francophone is it fifty percent? Yeah, they 50% don't get any communication. They don't get any communication from the municipal communi- government communica- in English. No, they don't. Okay, the, the, the communi- communities uh, that have to have fifty percent. Sometimes, if they fall under the fifty percent, it's not taken away right away. But the uh, the tr- the thing about the hospitals is, remember, services in English are guaranteed. If you go to the doctor, uh, he will, if he can, speak English to you. And I had that. Experience. I've seen uh, English services given at Maisonneuve-Rosemont and other places. So it's not that they will uh, refuse to deal with the patient, but say the the signs in the hospital will be in French only, uh, and so on. But, but if you go to the Toronto General, aren't the signs in English only? I don't know. I haven't been to the Toronto General. I'm sure they are. But, but, They're all in English only. Yeah, and, and, and I, I get it. But but let's go back to... <laughs> we, we, we can have fun with this. You go back to the communities where... And I lived in one of those communities where suddenly the percentage of Anglophones or non-Francophones dropped below 50%. Yes. And so then came a letter from the mayor in French informing every member of the community from now on the communication will only be in French from the, from the town, from the municipality. We apologize, but the provincial government has mandated that we may no longer communicate with you in English. Yeah, that happened in Rosemere in 1990, and we took it to court, and the Superior Court held, and the government did not appeal, that you can't just take it away. You've got to hold hearings, you've got to have discussions, you've got to have... Uh, you can't simply, by decree, do it. But they tried to do it in 1990. Our mind was not under Barassa, yeah. and we won in court. I was the lawyer who t- took that. I'm not surprised. It, it was uh, uh, it was done. So taking away the status, the bilingual status, is a process, and 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 it's not automatic. Would, could, let me let me play let me play from some, something for you because we only have a couple of minutes. Do you want to hear what Robert Barassa told me sure. about Bill 101? Sure. sure. Okay, so we're going to play. This is the former premier of Quebec who 
who, uh, who, who enacted the notwithstanding clause to overrule the Supreme Court of Canada on Bill 101. So we're standing on the, on the beach of the Pacific Ocean a week after the Quebec referendum, and I asked him about why he used the notwithstanding clause. My argument was that I want to, to uh, as Quebec Premier, my ultimate responsibility, and I'm the only one in North America having that, being responsible to a majority of French-speaking people, I have to take action to protect the French culture. And the Quebecers should be reassured that their government is conscious of that. But this does not mean that we have to um, limit uh, unduly the, uh, the individual liberties. Uh, of course, we had a problem with the signs, but we solved that finally. Uh, we, I had to delay. The, uh, the respect of my commitment because I said in 85 that we will change the law instead of doing it uh, in 88 I did it a few years after uh, so I had to uh, I had to add the additional few years but it, it's very important that we should protect the French culture for one simple reason 30 years ago uh, French Canadians in Canada were about 30% of the population now it's between 24 and 25. There's a little bit of it. I wasn't able to play it all because I ignored the clock. Julius, I enjoyed the conversation. Let's pick it up another day. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's always good talking to you. Okay. All the best. It's great. Civil rights, human rights lawyer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.